0: and that's what climate change is about it is literally
1: not figuratively a
0: clear and present danger
2: we are in the beginning of a mass extinction
0: the ability of co2 to do the heavy work of creating a climate catastrophe is almost nil at this point the
1: price of oil has been artificially elevated to the point of insanity that's
0: not how you power a modern industrial system the ultimate goal of this renewable energy you know plan is to reach the exact same point that we're at now you know who's trying that germany seven straight days of no wind for germany uh their factories are shutting down
2: they really do act like weather didn't happen prior to like 1910. today is friday
1: It is Friday, and welcome to yet another episode, episode number 63 of Climate Change Roundtable. Thank you for joining us today. Today, we're going to talk about some shameful propaganda from the Union of Concerned Scientists, and we'll also talk about peer review and the failure of it. With us today are our usual guests. We have Dr. Sterling Burnett and Linnea Lucan, who will both be giving their interesting and informative commentary on this thing from UCS. I I deferred saying what I really wanted to say. Anyway, um, uh, welcome guys. Hey, uh, let's get started right off the bat. You know, we got this uh, publication this week that got huge amounts of press, huge amounts of press all over the, the world from the Union of Concerned Scientists. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with this organization, this is an organization that goes back to the atomic age. And their whole premise was to stop, you know, nuclear testing and the bomb and all that sort of stuff. That was the premise of this. But, you know, they've become an advocate organization now. And their most big, their biggest advocacy is not nuclear anymore. It's climate change. And guess what? We use science to make climate change happen. Uh, If that's not a statement of we're in the, the business for, you know, bias. I don't know what is. But let's go to the the article that was published in, on CNN. Uh, this article is just mind-blowing. They say, according to the study by UCS, more than a third of the area charred by wildfires in western North America can be, can be traced back to fossil fuels, scientists find. And then they go through the article and start naming oil companies, you know, the usual suspects, ExxonMobil, blah, 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 you know, and, and that's, it's all their fault. That's the scientific study they pushed, when in fact, it's really little more than a propaganda piece. And um, I've done some work dissecting that. But before we get to that, I want to see what, what Linnea and Sterling have to say about this piece and UCS.
2: Well, it's summer, that means it's wildfire season, which means it's wildfire climate attribution season. So, expect a lot more of this, um, probably basically every month for the next 6 months.
1: Yep. I agree with you there.
0: I've uh I've dealt with the UCS reports before uh and even debated some people and pointed out on stage, yes, you too can become a concerned scientist with $25 uh Credit card, debit. Um, <laughs> these aren't scientists. Yeah, it's actually uh, yeah.
1: thirty-five now. You know, inflation. Oh, has it gone
0: up? Well, there you go. I haven't checked recently. I let my membership <laughs> lapse. Um, the it's not that they don't have scientists working for them. They do, um, but they 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 come at it strictly. I mean, as it says, as they admit, activist. They are, they are scientists with a position. Generally, that position is bigger science budgets, more restrictions, because everything, you know, technology is generally bad. Uh, and uh, they are the uh, Catholic Church of scientists in the sense of going back to Galileo. <laughs> Any modern thing, uh, you know, they like wind turbines that, Of course the dutch have been using wind turbines for hundreds of years so it's not a modern technology they they don't like uh modern interventions in nature and every one of the technological innovations they really hate uh, genetic engineering as far as they're concerned um they they take the extreme precautionary principle position any technology must be proven absolutely safe before we introduce it or adopt it The, the presumption is it's bad And so, uh... yeah,
1: you know, they're just—it's blatant the 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 propaganda. I mean, they just simply don't care, and their whole thing is is to get these sciency pieces. You know, yes, they got this published in peer review, but you know, I've gone through this paper that they published, and it shouldn't have passed peer review—not even close—because they did some really wonky things in it. But the problem is, they get it into peer review. And peer review fails, and then they say, "Well, it's peer reviewed; it's science." Whoa. You know, and so they get the media to, you know, follow it, and you end up with this garbage spread you, around the world.
0: You say the peer reviewed failed. I think the the state of peer review today, when you've got half of the uh, medical articles being rescinded, retracted after going through peer review in, initially. I think peer review now is doing exactly what it's meant to do, is to approve the science that the peer reviewers agree with and to reject uh, research that they disagree with. It's, you know, they become they become activists, uh, uh, too.
2: Well, that's an interesting thing to point out. Sterling with um, the idea that a retraction comes later, because journalists have been doing the same thing for a long time. You know, we know that they'll have a front page headline that'll scream something really dramatic. And then the next day buried on page 30 is the retraction. And they can claim that they were being, you know, scientifically rigorous or honest in their reporting. Um, But it's kind of a sneaky backhanded way of trying to be honest, yes, um, it's, it's, it's the
0: Emily Latella uh, yeah. view of journalism where she'd go on a rant. I, you're too young for this, uh, Linnea, but uh, it's a Saturday Night Live character where she'd go on this huge rant during the weekend update, and then they'd say, "Emily, it's it, it's not this word; it's this word," and then she'd say, "Oh, well, never mind."
1: Yeah. That's kind of like how the peer review process is today. You know, I mean, let's say that all of the research that I've done and you've done, Sterling, on this paper amounts to a retraction. We get it retracted. The Associated Press and Seth Borenstein, he's not going to announce that. You know, CNN, they're not going to announce that. Uh, The Journal will announce it, and they'll have a little thing about it. But this will get essentially zero press compared to the, the broad... uh, broadcasting of the lie throughout the world uh, based on the headlines that they come up with, you know, that uh, wildfires are caused by ExxonMobil. That's the gist of it. That is the gist of their whole science. But when you go through their science, it just falls apart. Now, I've done some research into this over the last week, and I have an article coming out next week on climate realism, and here's a bit of preview of some of that research. Uh, First, I want to show this first graphic uh, that talks about um, uh, figure one VPD versus Western. US Now the thing that they did in this this article, this peer-reviewed article is they came up with a metric that's hardly ever used by anyone called vapor pressure deficit it's basically a kind of like relative humidity relative humidity says you know it's 70% you know the atmosphere is 70% saturated with water well VPD based on vapor pressure is kind of like the same thing and so what they did was they started charting VPD values in a model you know along with temperature and so forth and they came up with this graphic which you can see here uh an inset and then the main graphic and the main graphic shows the whole world and areas where you expect it to be very dry like the sahara desert saudi arabia mexico uh you know central part of australia places like that yeah they're bright red they're very dry no surprise there but what is surprising is they claimed that vpd was diminishing it was getting drier in the western u.s and canada but this was based on their whole modeling thing right But I found a paper from 2020 uh, that talked about this VPD thing in relation to plants. And lo and behold, the areas that they were claiming were having VPD deficits, getting drier, turned out to be actually getting wetter, completely contradicting their claim in the paper. And you can see there on the inset, the, the green arrows showing where it's been wetter. And in California, where the big fires have happened, wetter. How do you think this gets past peer review, guys? How
0: well, like, I like I don't think that How they did you. any basic research. I've, I've I've known for a long time that generally peer review is uh, they eyeball a study. They they look at it, they read it, and they say well, that looks about right to me. And there you go. They don't do any fact checking. Uh, in the end, you know, you say it's a novel uh, way of uh, a novel, rarely used measurement. Well, it's actually commonly used in actual greenhouses because right. it's easy to monitor and capture the closed system of a greenhouse because they're really concerned about growing plants and how much humidity is. So they right. use it there as a comparison. What should the humidity be and what's the deficit from that? How do we get it up? Globally, there is no, I, I looked, I, I got to say, I could be wrong here. But I tried to find out when VPD was discovered as a measurement, when it was, you know, when a scientist first defined it, and where the monitoring stations are, how widespread is it, how long it's been around. I find no data on any of that. I do not believe, I do not believe, they say something like from 19, I think their, their study said from 1901 to 1921 or something like that. I do not but, believe that we monitor, we measure VPD around the world. I don't believe. No, that.
1: we don't. We measure uh, other things, and they've calculated and, and estimated this VPD
0: exactly. You know, it's in
1: hard. the model, but it's no one. There is not a weather station on the planet that gives you a VPD report. There are there are monitoring. Elements inside of greenhouses that'll give you a VPD report, but no weather station. So the whole thing was made up, and they made it up. Well, not necessarily made up, but it was massaged for purpose and brought into this this whole peer review process. Now, I assumptions, got assumptions.
0: Sec- assumptions about the past were built into climate models, and those assumptions have no basis in in data or evidence.
1: Right. So that was the first error in this. Basically, the second error had to do with citing wildfire data. Now. They used the usual trick that Al- climate alarmists use. They cherry-picked the data. Now, we've talked about this before, uh, both on climate realism and also here on, on Climate Change Roundtable. We talk about the data that comes from the National Interagency Fire Center. So what do these guys do, you know, with this study? They cherry-picked the data from 1986. Here it says 1983, but they actually chose 1986 for some reason. From 1986 to the present, they chose to use the wildfire data. They ignored all the previous wildfire data, which has been so-called disappeared because, well, when we started talking about wildfire data and many others picked it up saying, well, look, wildfires were much worse back in the 20s and 30s before fire suppression was put into place. And lo and behold, they decided, well, we can't have that because it shows a downward trend when you look at the whole data set. So what happened? NIFC? Disappeared the data before 1983, and the people, you know, at UCS says, "Oh, well, that's fine with us. We'll just use that." And so they used data not just from 1983. They did an extra cherry pick and said from 1986, and so that's all the data they use. Meanwhile, talking about a modeled VPD back to 1901 and making comparisons between the two—that's just not even. It's just blatantly bad science. Yeah, no, that's really.
2: And Sterling and I have talked about this a lot. And I'm sorry if my voice is terrible today, you guys. I went to D.C. last week and I caught, I don't know, like swamp disease or something. Swamp flu. Swamp (laughs) flu, yeah. Um, (laughs) But it's really remarkable that they they had that whole data set. And they decide that the year that has the lowest wildfire occurrence is the starting point. Um, and all the data before it is unreliable. Uh, it's gross is what it is.
0: Yeah. Well, right. you know what they claim, what they're, what they claim on the website is that we've decided that the, that we couldn't account for the data before, uh, the 1980s, that, uh, it was, uh, inconsistent. Now, mind you, um, uh, Dozens, if not hundreds, of peer-reviewed papers were published prior to pulling that down, citing the earlier data. The, the federal government stood by this data for 80 years, said, this is, this is what we have. And then when climate change became an issue and people were disputing claims about wildfires, suddenly they've decided that data is unreliable. Right. Uh, but we're confident about the data now. Now, of course, it's also convenient, you know, as as Linnea points out, they picked the lowest year. What was going on during those years? This was Reagan era in the Reagan era. He was logging maximally. They were suppressing fires and they were cutting timber. And uh, that stopped with the uh, rise of George Bush in '88 when he decided to take an ecosystem approach to forest management where they cut back on logging, where they pulled out logging roads, which were also used to fight wildfires and suppress them early, ripped out thousands of miles of logging roads. And uh, the result has been more timber, more dead and dying timber, easier infestations, and the inability to fight wildfires except when they get near areas where pumper trucks can get to, I mean they they use helicopters and and planes, but you can't get enough, you can't get enough suppress uh, suppressant on them, so wildfires go out because of federal policy, and they blame it on climate change.
1: Right, yeah, it's just blatant cherry picking. It's not science. It's not even science as we know it. It's just it's not even it's not science at all. It's it's an agenda and and UCS. Has clearly stated we have an agenda to change the world using science. Can't get any more biased than that. You, all right. You, so
0: you you coined the right term, Anthony. It's not science. It's sciencey. It sounds like science.
1: Right. Right. So I've got another graphic I want to show you because they're claiming that fossil fuels, you know, emit CO two, and you know, CO two is uh, you know coordinated with fire and all this other stuff. So. Uh, Tony Heller, uh, in an email to some folks in our private climate group, sent these graphs along, and I updated and and changed them a little bit to make it a little better for television presentation. So if we look at, in the paper, how UCS cherry-picked the wildfire data, and you look at the correlation of carbon dioxide with the wildfire data that was cherry-picked, only going from 1983 to the present, why, gosh, on the left side there, panel A, there's a wonderful correlation you know the r value must be fantastic for that but if you look at all of the data the entire data set on the right panel b no correlation whatsoever of course they don't show you that because that would just destroy their whole argument
0: and and what's interesting in the study is they blame, they specific, you know they get they get pretty specific in this study right yeah. They, they blame this on eighty-eight, I believe, major oil companies around the world and, and concrete manufacturing, seven percent. Uh it's those guys, these eighty-eight companies. It's like hold it. Um it's not
1: they call it the big eighty-eight.
0: The big eighty eight. It's not three billion additional people. It's not any uh, logging, you know, excessive uh, logging in the Amazon. It's not um, uh, coal-fired power plants, even. I mean, you know, say because they they focus on the oil companies, so it's not it's not uh, coal emissions or emissions from power plants, be they natural gas or coal. It's nothing else. How do they tease it out? How do they justify that? They can't. It's impossible to pick those 88 as the cause of all that CO2, because they're not the cause of all that CO2.
1: Yeah. So
0: this this, this it's research- It's a giant
1: leap of illogic.
0: This research and the articles, any article published upon it are baseless. The research is baseless and idiotic. And anyone who reports upon it, it with uncritically, is just stupid. They're not trying to do what's right by journalism.
1: Right, you're absolutely right. It's just baseless. It's it to be. That's really a kind way to describe it. My way to describe it is it, it's garbage. It's detritus. It's just useless because it's about an agenda. They basically made a sciencey-sounding paper, got it through peer review, and then used it to, as they say, change the world. Now I got one final piece of evidence I want to show you about just how bad this UCS paper. This is a climate realism article. Uh, that we did, uh, I did uh, back uh, last summer in June 14th. So interesting thing, when you start looking at satellite data and the most recent weather satellites that have been out there can now gauge areas of fire around the world and their look down, they can determine, yes, this area is burning. And so when you take that data uh, and start plotting it, you notice something really interesting here. Look at that. It started going down around 1983, and then it started going up in 1995, and then around 2010, it started going down again. How can it go down if, you know, these oil companies are out there pushing petroleum products in the last decade? Answer is it can't. Now, if you scroll down further and you look at the correlation with carbon dioxide, you see that there's just no correlation at all. Again, uh, keep going. We've got another graph right below that. There it is. You know, as carbon dioxide was increasing over the last decade, fires are going down globally. How could that be if carbon dioxide is driving global fires? The whole thing is just garbage, That what they're doing.
0: Yeah, I think NASA satellite data says since 2000, global wildfires are down 20% now, or 25%. Uh, the acreage burned. So the question is: since climate change is a global issue, not Western United States, why is it going up in the Western United States and not anywhere else around the world? Um, it 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 it's illogical.
1: Well, I have an answer to that too, and that's a graphic I didn't think to bring to this, but I've talked about this graphic I produced uh, some a number of times. And that is, if you go and look at um, what happened when the spotted owl was going into California, and the environmentalists were using the habitat for the spotted owl to try to shut down logging, and they were successful. They shut down logging all over the West Coast. Well, when you look at the area of wildfire burned versus the spotted owl thing, you can see a very clear delineation line. Right after the spotted owl law went into effect, effect, wildfires in the West started increasing because they could no longer do any logging. They could no longer do any... um, you know, fire here it is right here. Thank you, Andy. Great, find. Mm-hmm. Right there, that graphic right there, I prepared. You can see that's when the, the, the black line is when the, the law went into effect. You can see that the uh, number of acres harvested on federal land dropped. And then slowly, because we couldn't manage the land anymore for fear of disturbing the spotted owl, there's been an increase in fires. Now,
0: I'm sure those are good for that. the
1: spotted owl. What's that, Sterling?
0: I'm sure those fires proved good for the spotted owl. (laughs) Yeah. All right.
2: This argument, though, the spotted owl thing, you know, on the environmentalist side has always um, been very interesting to me. And Sterling, I wonder if you would have a better answer to this. But why do they think that taking away, you know, certain types of old dead hardwood that they like to put their nests in would mean that they wouldn't be able to find other types of trees to put their nests in. Like, do they just not build nests anymore at all if they don't have a nice dead hollow tree or?
0: Well, I guess the argument is that um, they've evolved to use that kind of habitat and those kinds of trees and that they're not adaptable enough to move to different types of trees or 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 fly over. If you did a clear cut or fly the distance from one side of a clear cut to the other Uh, The wings don't carry them that far. I don't know. Uh, What we do know is that where these owls have supposedly been protected, um, that barred owls have now moved into the habitat and are displacing them. And so the feds are now actively trying to suppress, that means kill folks, um, barred owls to protect spotted owls. We didn't, you know, humans didn't move barred owls and those ha- nature did uh, but we're going to interfere with nature to protect one owl species over another um i guess it does better in formerly char- you know in charred forests than spotted owls do i, I, I well, i'm
2: gonna give those owl is just crazy I'm, I'm gonna give those environmentalists a call because i got a barred owl problem in <laughs> my neighborhood if, if right. anyone in the comments hasn't heard the noises that a whole big group of barred owls make in the middle of the night. You can't understand my pain.
1: <laughs> all right. So speaking of animal life, um, now we've talked about how UCS has cherry picked data, uh, how they have you know made false premises, ignored uh, contradictory data, you know, all this other stuff. But here's the thing. As Sterling pointed out at the beginning of our show, To be a member of the Union of Concerned Scientists, all you have to do is send in a a credit card. And uh, I did this several years ago. I decided to test that theory. And so as a result, I enrolled my dog, Kenji, in the Union of Concerned Scientists. There he is, Kenji, a Japanese chin. I put his name in, sent it in, sent the fee in. Lo and behold, I got a letter back a letter from the union of concerned scientists welcoming my dog to the union of concerned scientists as you know being part of the whole expert group of people that are concerned about the planet so it, it you know it, it, their only interest as far as i'm concerned my opinion is money money power and influence there's no science involved in the union of concerned scientists it's just money power and influence and you know signing up your dog that kind of proves it. I think
0: did your dog have an advanced degree?
1: Um, well, he has, uh, he has skills. <laughs> <laughs> I see. I, he, I just, he can, he can roll over. He can fetch. I was just um, trying to
0: give UCS the benefit of the doubt there. I thought maybe if he was a highly educated hound, um, he might qualify as a concerned scientist but it doesn't sound like
1: yeah yeah it, it just you know and they never acknowledged this after i did this you know because it was just too embarrassing for them but um <laughs> four legs good two legs bad thanks jim uh, about, that's well, like about yeah, true.
0: i bet he had <laughs> a rough time with that anyway
1: point. so um what i've been trying to do is teach kenji to um Go on peer-reviewed papers like this, but he hasn't mastered that <laughs> skill yet.
0: If you could just get him to bark at the papers when they're produced and they're bad, that would be good.
1: Yeah, there he is reading his welcome materials upside down.
2: <laughs> hey, that's a skill.
1: There you go. Uh, anyway, so kidding aside, I want to remind everyone that we have a feature here on this channel called Super Chat and you can leave questions in Super Chat and pay a small fee and that'll get our attention but will help support this program. So if you want to uh, help us out and at the same time make sure your question gets answered, leave a Super Chat comment and we will get to it at the end of the show. So with that, we're gonna move on to the next topic. And uh, the next topic is climate change will impact strawberry production in Florida. Right.
0: Yeah. One more. Oh, uh, no.
1: We've got an ad blocker. <laughs> you got to work that out. But um, so basically, there's another study. Also, it looked like a f- complete failure of peer review from Fresh Plaza. Of course, you know, they're big on science there.
0: Now, um, what, let's be fair. That's not they. Fresh Plaza did what CNN did. They reprinted. Basically, they wrote about the review by another activist group by, uh, the environmental defense fund, environmental defense fund produced a study saying, uh, strawberries in Florida are threatened by climate change generally because, uh, of, uh, worsening hurricanes and weather. And, um, um, I forget what the other big factor may have been, uh, heat, but I'm not sure about that. I don't remember, but, um, Client, and and Fresh Plaza just did what CNN did. It just republished it. Oh, this this must be the truth. EDF produced a study saying so. Now EDF study is not a peer-reviewed study. It's pr- published by them. Uh, they are explicitly an activist group, but you know they produce data. They th- or or they, they they say it's science. So I went and checked it, and guess what? Strawberry production's up. There's no evidence it's going down. Uh, 20, 20 last thirty years of climate change just keeps growing nationwide it's growing uh and and the factors that they say will harm uh strawberry production they're not getting worse the the, the weather factors so hurricanes aren't increasing in number or severity so i won't say yeah. this is a f- failure of peer review it's just a failure of of uh of curiosity intelligence it's applied ignorance
1: yeah yeah
0: it is interesting
2: you know they talk about they talk about it as though it and they do this a lot every time i see an article that's talking about food production and climate change um it's almost never that food production is declining due to climate change they're saying that they project that food production will begin to decline with climate change and it's kind of It kind of brings into question the recent narrative that they've been saying where they're admitting that the tipping point thing is kind of um, being misused. You know, a lot of the scientists will go on CNN and say, well, a tipping point isn't a real tipping point. We're not saying that there's a point of no return, you know, which is basically there. Like, we're reaching that tipping point. And if we make it there and still nothing has happened, we have to push it again. Um, but this idea that, you know, by 2050, strawberries will be down 17% in Florida. When for the last more than 100 years of warming, we've seen, you know, continuous uh, increases in production. It's, it's really hard to take it seriously. And it shouldn't be taken seriously.
1: Right. But, you know, if you have, you know, this image in your mind, like a lot of climate alarmists do, a lot of people on the left, that, you know, climate change is going to make everything worse. It's going to destroy the planet. People will die, you know. You you take this stuff hook, line, and sinker, and you don't question it. And that's not science at all, you know. Science is all about questioning everything, even sta- so-called established science. But that's not being done in climate change. Climate change the science is settled. Well, that's what they tell you. We don't need to question it anymore. It's settled. Well, bullshit. It's not settled. It's changing every day. There's new papers coming out. Next week, we're going to talk about a new peer-reviewed paper that's come out talking about the decline of hurricane activity over the last hundred years. It was published in Nature, the top science journal on the planet. And, you know, it goes completely contradictory to what the you know, the media and climate alarmists are saying about hurricanes. hurricane. We'll going, talk about that next week.
0: Going back to the strawberry thing, just for a second. So uh, when I was doing the research to, to, you know, to check the data, to, that's what I do. I go and try and find sources of data and find out whether, because climate change, they, they've been telling us climate change is happening, right? It's not, it's not projected in the future. Climate change is here. And so, I'm constantly assailed with the claim that the last 20 years, the the first two decades of the 21st century are the warmest on record by which they mean is the instrumental record. So the warmest years on record, when was the last record for strawberry production in Florida set? Strawberry production over the 20 years, the the warmest period on record has doubled in, in, um, in Florida. So as it's getting warmer, strawberries are, are increasing. They've doubled. Uh, when was the last record set? The last record was set in 2020. One of the warmest years on record. Um, uh, the yields, one of the warmest years on record, record set. So it's it's just when theory confronts fact and the facts um, – seem to undermine the theory you're supposed to follow the evidence in science in in real science not make the evidence fit the theory not and that's not what happens here it's just it's really shoddy it's really sad
1: Right. And, you know, we go through this every week at Climate Realism and literally every week. You know, someone makes a claim coffee is going to be destroyed by climate change. Maple syrup is going to be destroyed by climate change. You're not going to have any more fish due to climate change. You know, um, uh, some obscure vegetable like a rutabaga is going to be affected by climate change. Nobody cares about rutabagas, but... That's the whole gist of it. They keep pushing this and pushing this and pushing this. And almost without exception, when you go and check the production data on these crops, they're on the increase with, you know, in line with increased temperature. Warmer is better for humanity. Warmer is better for crops. And increased CO2 is better for crops. And increased CO2 helps plants manage water better. And it's all there in the data. And yet the climate alarmist community and the media will tell you every day of the week and twice on Sundays that climate change is going to make food security bad. This isn't true. All right, let's move on to our next topic. We've got, uh, the numbers are in on how Biden era funding is skewing scientific research ever woke word. Yes, woke science is now the big thing. You know, um, wokeism is invading factualism. Um, I have no expertise in this, mainly because I find it so disgusting. I can't possibly read it, but you guys can talk about it.
0: I'm going to leave that to Linnea. I haven't, uh, <laughs> I, I haven't read this. Uh, it doesn't surprise me. You you fund every administration funds what it cares about. Right. And the Biden administration is pushing wokeism everywhere. Look, millions, 100 maybe hundreds of millions, but certainly millions uh, of dollars are being spent on environmental justice. It's, it's ill-defined. It, it you don't exactly know what it is. Uh, every department has environmental justice built into it, even if it's has nothing to do with the environment, uh, Uh, You know, the State Department, the Department of Defense, environmental justice has got to be built into every department. So hundreds of million dollars. And so I thought, you know, I've heard about environmental justice for a long time. I've even written about environmental justice. I wonder when that became a, um, a, a, a legitimate topic of funding in the federal government. What law passed, told them to start working on environmental justice issues? It turns out there is no law. There's not a single law that makes environmental justice a federal concern. It's an executive order. Addict. It was an executive order out of uh, of Clinton it was the first time environmental justice became uh, of interest to in the federal government. So we're spending millions of dollars on something that's not even sanctioned by law. And that's not, of course, the only thing that environmental wokeism is going on. They're, they're funding education woke, uh, that, you know, trying to incorporate climate concerns into every english class math class um social studies class everything is all climate or all gender or all uh lb uh, gtq or whatever the woke cause de jure is it's that all the time and that's what he's funding because that's what he cares about yeah.
2: well and this is how you can direct you know the course of science in general um <clears throat> If the funding is targeting a particular narrative, then unfortunately that's where the science is going to go. That's the way it always has been. Um, in this particular article talking about um, the focus on DEI type of stuff, which is diversity equity inclusion in uh, research grants. I mean, I've, I've gone through some of the National Science Foundation grants when I was doing research on um, geothermal. Because I kept seeing articles talking about how uh, geothermal kind of struggles to get some of these grants. Like they get a pretty good amount, but not nearly as much as if you also toss in that uh, you're studying how, I don't know, let's say like how geothermal energy in Nevada could help underprivileged communities actualize, you know, and as long as you, as long as you throw as many buzzwords into your grant application as possible, you will be more likely to get it, which is obviously, um, rather a shameful state of affairs, uh, because you always one, have to wonder, you know, if their priority is on these kind of, um, you know, external factors, then what kind of research is getting passed over that just, you know, maybe the researchers weren't clever enough to try and hedge their work with, um, you know, these kinds of terms.
0: Well, you know, to be fair, I I, I get science uh, uh, emails from science uh, because I've I've been a paid member for quite a while, for uh, for many years, and in the last year, I've noticed a real obsession with diversity, right? They are spending a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of publication space on, are um, research publications diverse enough? What does it have to do with science? Not a thing. What does, what does it have to do with, with uh, the progress of uh, knowledge, of learning new things or better understanding old things that we thought we knew? What does a person's race have to do with that? Uh, they're obsessing over how many women are on um, uh, research teams, how many um, African-Americans, you know, the racial makeup of research teams, as if that has anything to do with whether the science is sound or not.
2: Well, and that's their that's their point, though, Sterling. That's the current theory of um that's the current theory operating in STEM right now. And it's been that way for a while, at least while I was in school, that's the way it was. Um, and the idea is that, you know, a male engineer is good, but, a, but as long as you have a female engineer in the room, then you're getting a diversity of opinion. And that doesn't really tend to work out that way but oftentimes, because they, no, of not- they get a bunch of, you know, if you get um, someone with a, point of view on climate change that there's a climate catastrophe and they're you know one person from every country on the planet but then you have another group that is one person from i don't know every city in ohio (laughs) and they all have different opinions well which one's more diverse
0: well i don't i guess i don't I honestly don't care about diversity when it comes to engineering, for instance, or when it comes to math. If there's a if there's a, a, a male mathematician, a female mathematician, there's a transsexual mathematician, they're all different races. As long as they all come up with the two plus two equals four, uh, the same results on the formula, I don't care if they were all white, if they were all female, if they're all transsexual. That's a universal. And if they come up with a different answer than that, then we have a problem. And yeah, but they're engineers are up- over bridges, you know, uh, we got bridges over going over rivers. I don't want a diversity of opinion over what will hold up uh under heavy traffic over the course of years that, that the bridge is right. supposed to span. Yeah, and, but sterling. Now we've got right people
2: now, out
1: there saying math is racist. Yeah,
2: Seriously. right now there's a there's an there is At one of the smithsonian museums or one of the national museums it says that mathematics the way that we do it saying something like two plus two equals four is a white supremacist framework that is what our government and what major scientists are publishing right now so Hmm. it's it we've we have been way behind on that particular area. I mean, this stuff has been developing in the university since the 1960s, or even earlier, maybe. And um, the fact that, you know, we're only now, because it's like right there in our very public institutions where, you know, when I was in college, people would always say, you know, oh, these crazy liberal kids in college, when they get into the real world, they're going to grow up and realize that it doesn't work. Incorrect. <laughs> they grow up. They go into the real world and they become the HR director of a major corporation, or they become uh, the head of the Smithsonian National Museums, or they do whatever. And they incorporate what they learned in university, this radical stuff, into their life, um, and they push it on the rest of us.
0: And they you know, diminish. And they diminish progress in science
1: one thing about this you know they're talking about math as racist well climate models use a lot of math
0: therefore climate <laughs> models are racist right <laughs> yeah 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 all right I let's would, move on I to would, the next i would subject. wager i would wager the the modelers themselves don't make up a very diverse uh, cross section of society
1: oh uh, yeah that's just that's a topic for another day okay so In the middle of all that, White House pushed for stronger, faster climate rule as as court challenges loom. Uh, This is a topic Sterling wanted to discuss. I don't know much about this, but I'm going to
0: let you guys run with it. I just want to say this. so A few years ago, under both uh, the second President Bush and under Donald Trump, when political appointees started rewriting or editing sections of uh, documents from different agencies, the press was all over it. Oh, my God. Political interference in science. We should follow the science. Well, Biden has done the same thing. And the you can hear the crickets. There's no, there's no outrage. And what Biden did is he told the EPA, we don't care whether you think our clean air rule is feasible. We don't care whether you think it's legally defensible. Do what we want. The EPA said it was impossible to get the emissions reductions from coal plants without destroying the electric power grid. That they had planned on only regulating, putting carbon capture and storage on new new natural gas plants, not existing ones. Because of the feasibility. Because the technology doesn't exist. Uh, that, that, that's been proven to work. Biden, the Biden administration got the proposed rule and they said, no, 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 that doesn't comport with the goals that we've set. Go back and rewrite it and do this. And they said, we'll we'll get we'll lose in court. It's not possible. And they said, we don't care. Write the rule we want. That's not following the science. That's dictating the end of the science. And when uh, when. Uh, Trump and Bush were accused of doing this kind of thing, the press was outraged. Stories for days, nothing.
1: I remember that. I remember that. Yeah, it just, you know, anything goes as long as it's our side kind of thinking, especially when it comes to climate science or so-called climate science. All right, so let's go on to the next topic. This one here is a, an oldie but goodie that's been revised as if it's actually really true. Climate change is linked to increased pirate attacks. Yes, you heard that correctly. The bite says that climate change and pirate attacks have a correlation. Oh, my goodness. Gosh. You know, that... Arr. Arr. <laughs> <laughs> climate change is... Doesn't is isn't just causing weird weather patterns like stronger storms or flood surges. Apparently, scientists say we can also blame it for we should you not, an increase in pirate attacks on the waters off of East Africa. Now, never mind the economic situation of Africa, never mind the famines, never mind the the you know the media coverage that has spurred more climate attacks, never mind any of that. Oh no, it's climate change. Now, the really cool thing about this stupid article, and, and that's the kindest thing I can call it, is that about 15 years ago, when you know climate change was being pushed at the beginning and all kinds of crazy correlations were being made, one of the most common uh, hilarious graphics that was distributed was about climate change and pirate attacks. And I wrote an article on What's Up With That about this, and we have this this graphic that shows a clear correlation between climate change and pirate attacks on what's up with that. And it's it's just hilarious. Here we go. There it is. Global average temperature versus the number of pirates. Mm. <laughs> you that... can make anything look like a correlation if you try hard enough
0: boy i i can't see the correlation the, the the lines look pretty flat to me and the piracy seems to be going up <laughs> uh, i just you know you wonder supposedly climate change is causing more hurricanes and cyclones uh they they form off the often they form off the coast of africa so if that's happening i've seen that modern day pirates the little, the little boats that they go up to sea with, uh, I don't know how they hold up with all those cyclones and hurricanes caused by climate change there. Why aren't they swamped and drowning and learning that we need to go uh, different times of years to do our piracy? Uh, You know, the other factor, the other factor, the main factor, I would suppose, the reason why piracy is up is because, uh, you know, besides the poverty, all those things that you, you cited, Anthony, is the fact that, in the old days, when a pirate tried to take a ship, uh, the, the ship captains usually fought it off. They had guns on board and typically as bigger, bigger guns than the pirates were wielding. And now most ships, uh, shipping has been banned from having their own guns. Uh, they, they have to call on authorities. Uh, I'm like, in the old days, pirates were hung pretty promptly after their activities. You don't see many people hanging from the yard arms anymore.
2: Um,
0: So if pirates are told we can get away with this stuff most of the time,
2: uh, it it invites more piracy. I have a lot of questions about this data. Um, (laughs) I'm very skeptical. So first, maybe they should try per capita because that might be an interesting uh, comparison to see how many pirates there are. Because there's, uh, what, like 7 billion people on the planet today. A lot of people are in... Did they? If they adjusted for, you know, percentage, you know, of the current population, then that's interesting, too. Uh, (laughs) I have a really hard time believing that there are more pirates in the year 2000 than there were in, like, the Age of Exploration. Uh, Other than the fact that there are just fewer people in general. Um, I also think that sterling is spot on about the uh, punitive um, response to piracy nowadays if they just kind of get away with it because a lot of those somalian pirates in particular tend to be backed by their government so i think that this government or this survey needs to uh, recategorize based on pirates versus technical privateering and then do the count again and see how that works out uh, I also want to know how they count how many pirates there were in what what is that date? 18. Yeah, I, I don't
1: think pirates fill out um, <laughs> census
2: form. forms. <laughs> what's your career? Well, that's and, how they get them. Occupation. <laughs> the the, arrr, arrr. Uh,
0: the pirate. The the question that puzzles me now uh, that arose is uh, what's the diversity of pirates now? Oh. Um, because, uh, you know, if they're not diverse enough,
2: <laughs> we,
0: we need to sanction them for their climate activities as opposed to saying they're driven by climate.
2: We need m- more diversity in piracy, which means we're going to have to get some Norwegians in the game to well, now, going up and down the North Coast.
0: Look, South Park had a cure for that. Cartman was more than willing to join the Pirates uh, uh it, it, you know go to seas and and raise hoist the black flag. So, you know, maybe maybe we can get some small kids from, from Colorado to uh to join the pirates.
1: Yeah. All right. Enough about piracy and climate change. Final option for the or final topic, not an option, is about, well, you know, France is getting fed up. <laughs> Macron calls for a green pause because the environmental regulations that they're going through in France is just becoming so overwhelming; it's becoming unpopular. And so Macron is basically saying, "Ah, you know what? Let's put this on hold for a while. Maybe it's not such a good idea." You know, we don't want to pay more for energy. You know, we don't want to drive a car that only goes uh, seventy-five miles on a charge. All that other stuff. Anyway, it well, really kind of a sign of the times. A lot of people really are getting fed up with the with the rules regulations and ethics that are coming out of climate change
0: Sterling. yeah but but shouldn't we if we follow the science shouldn't we say we understand this is hard but world war 2 was hard we just have to make some sacrifices you know Ma- macron should just stiffen his backbone and say you know it's hard folks you're not y- y- your prices are going to go up you're not going to have your baguettes uh no more uh nice creamy cheeses um we got to give up our, uh, uh, what's that dadgum car that they drive that I always thought was really ugly looking? Um, you know, we got to give up our, our cars. Uh, our no petra more trips. masculinity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we've got to make these sacrifices. You just have to live to learn. You have to learn to live with it. And we all need to live with less. Uh, that's not what he's doing, which is surprising because he's been a leader in the climate battle. I didn't know you could just turn it on and off uh, climate concern in the battle when it becomes inconvenient for your political career. Yeah.
1: Anyway, I I think that's a good thing. This is a good piece of news. You know, it's saying, hey, people are waking up. Maybe this isn't such a good idea. Maybe it isn't practical. All right. So we're going to go to questions now. I know a lot of you have posed questions to us. And if you haven't already, feel free to drop one in right now. Use the Super Chat if you want to bring your attention attention to your question to the top of the pile. Um, but let us know what your questions are, and we'll try to answer them or skewer them best we can. So what do we got here, Andy, for the first question? Has the Renewable Plus storage grid been proven to be safe?
2: Well, we haven't had a Renewables Plus <laughs> storage grid at scale almost anywhere, I think, not, not to a significant degree. No, yeah, so I think so Nowhere. There's save. no
0: place where renewables plus storage satisfies any grid, a uh, large scale grid. So it, it, it's, it, it can't be proven safe. <laughs> well, maybe until it could we be implement. projected to be safe. <laughs> well, the projections, uh, the projections that FERC has put out and, and the, uh, uh, the federal, uh, the uh, Energy Admi- Information Administration. Uh, that does it doesn't give you confidence that uh, renewable plus storage is safe at all if you want uh, grid reliability. Yeah, yeah. All
1: right. Question: Eight years of warming pause is big. Are there other sources other than UAH saying this? Well, um, UAH being the satellite temperature record from the University of Alabama at Huntsville. Yes, they're showing a pause. Uh, However, the complementary data run by another outfit who interprets it differently, RSS, doesn't show a pause. But interestingly enough, if you go and look at the surface temperature data for the United States and also for the world, you can actually see that since we hit the peak, thanks to El Nino in 2015 and 2016, temperatures have been going down. Yes, that's true. Right there in the data. But that's not going to be acknowledged. You know, right now, the big push in the media is El Nino's coming back. Global warming is going to get worse. What they don't correlate is that El Nino and global warming are not the same thing.
0: Yeah.
1: But, you know, it sells papers.
0: It's anyway. interesting. So right now you see a lot of a lot of articles and papers saying El Nino could drive uh, temperatures above 1.5 degrees. And they're saying and they're saying a trip that that El Nino is doing this. I have a feeling that if temperatures go above one point five degrees, they'll stop talking about El Nino and they'll start talking about climate change.
2: Um, Suddenly,
0: El Nino will be gone from the conversation, despite the fact right now they're saying El Nino might drive this. The other point, and I think this is even more important. I've been told since 2015 in the Paris Climate Agreement, 2015 is a disaster. I mean, 1.5 is disaster. The world ends at 1.5, all sorts of tragedies. So if we hit 1.5 this year because of El Nino, does that mean uh, we might as well, uh, you know, just lay in bed from there on and rot because well, Sterling, uh, the world's over? already.
2: I mean, and we talked about this before, but they're already laying the groundwork for their you know, apologetics on that. They're yeah. already saying that, you know, oh, well, actually, when we said 1.5 degree tipping point, we didn't really mean that it is the end of the world and you can give up trying now, yeah. you know. So we still need the money. We still gonna, need our funding. They're, yeah, they're going to so. give
0: their death cult retraction. Uh, yeah, yeah. We, we predicted the end of the world on this date, but it didn't come. We got the math wrong.
1: Yeah, well, you know, hey, we've already one we reached yeah. 1.5 degrees centigrade. If you look at the data from the Berkeley Earth surface temperature dataset. It goes back to 1850 we've already surpassed 1.5 degrees centigrade of warming since then but you know they don't want to talk about that because it's all about the future and we must we must change our lifestyle so that the future doesn't come true and roast us all
2: um there it was one of the questions um where'd it go uh from matt that says how do you accurately measure something so chaotic and complex as our climate and i think that's an interesting maybe we can devote bring a guest on maybe even have a debate on this or something because on the skeptical side this is really something that i've noticed is debated is what what matters to include in a climate model we don't really have time to address this whole thing uh today sorry can't breathe for a second here
1: it's okay. Blame it um, on climate change, Linnea.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's climate change. Um, but how do you measure it when, you know, we've discussed how there's a good deal of complication. There's not very much agreement on what the net uh, effect of like cloud cover is. Um, if, you know, if or to have what degree space weather has to do with our climate systems, um, you know, we, we talk about, you uh, off gassing from the oceans how well mixed you know it, it's all it's super complicated there's so many different uh, factors that go into it so anthony to you do you think that it's possible to accurately model climate and and extrapolate that data to predicting weather on the short term and also have a long-term model that accurately predicts to within a reasonable amount Uh, like future temperatures.
1: Well, I can address this based on my experience with weather models over the past 30 years. You know, we've dramatically, when I first started doing television meteorology in 1978, we were lucky to get out three days ahead accurately. Sometimes it would get to five, but you know, three to five days was really the maximum that we could predict. And that was based on mostly skill forecaster skill you know we didn't have the big heavy duty weather models running back then so three to five days and then we got computer models involved and we started getting better the skill of these models got more and more accurate and now we can start accurately predicting out seven to ten days and you can see this in the way television news has changed it used to be the five-day forecast was the big deal now we see routinely the seven-day forecast or the ten-day forecast but the problem is chaos Chaos, uh, the atmosphere is chaotic, and we've known this for for decades. And the problem is, is that because of chaos in the atmosphere, numerical modeling breaks down after a while. And no matter how fast of a computer you got, at some point, you still can't model it accurately past about seven to 10 days. I don't think we're going to get much better than that in reality. So The same thing applies to climate. It's a much longer term sort of a thing, but it is also chaotic. And so we end up with, you know, stuff that changes dramatically, like an El Nino comes in, a La Nina comes in. We have a, a big uh, a change in currents in the ocean, all these other things. We have an increase in volcanic uh, sulfur dioxide, which changes uh, the albedo of the upper atmosphere. We have an increase in carbon soot due to, you know, things like industrialization in the 1850s through the 1940s, things like that. All these different things figure in. And cloud cover is the one thing that they've never really gotten a handle on. Cloud cover modeling over the long term, they just kind of throw up their hands and some of the models don't even include it at all. And so no, it's really not we can't accurately predict the future uh, with climate because of chaos involved in the system.
0: Well, you know, and another big factor is long-term uh, ocean current shifts the 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 speed with which. Um, uh, the the Atlantic current uh, uh, moves water, moves energy around the oceans, uh, and the the Pacific as well. Um, those aren't integrated into the models. Uh, of course, they they don't handle El Nino or or or, or El Nino or La Nina uh, no. because they don't understand them, and that's why they're not really climate models. I you know it's sort of a misnomer that these are climate models. They are temperature models. They are models of the Earth's response to CO2 vis-a-vis temperature rise. And then there are all sorts of assumptions about feedback mechanisms, but really all the models, um, what they think they can handle is CO2 and temperature, and they don't even handle that very well, as we know. So we call them climate models. But they're really mainly modeling one thing the Earth's uh, CO2 response, the Earth's temperature response to CO2. And everything else is window dressing. Um,
1: yep, that's true. All right, so we got another question here. Um, this one from Douglas Pollock. Could Anthony explain to people why the northern hemisphere gets hotter than the southern one? Well, two reasons. Number one, there's more land mass in the Northern Hemisphere than the Southern Hemisphere. The sun heats the land differently than it heats the ocean. So that's factor number one. Number two, something I've been talking about for years, is bias. There's much more population in the Northern Hemisphere, much more industrialization, much more asphalt, much more concrete, much more buildings, all of these biasing factors. So those two things combine generally make the Northern Hemisphere warmer than the Southern Hemisphere. There may be other factors that I'm not privy to, but those are the two major ones that come to mind. All right, final question. Drum roll. Boiling Frog says, did climate change escape from... (laughs) Wuhan lab. They seem to have the same type of science.
2: Well... Yes, trying to get I our think. channel shut down, <laughs> like. <we did. laughs> you know, a good you know I guess
0: we have to see whether the Wuhan lab even existed when they first started talking about climate change. If though, maybe if so, maybe we can go back and trace. You know, that you would could, make an. Go ahead, Linnea.
2: Sorry, I bet you can make an attribution study that shows climate change is because people are eating pangolins. I'm sure you could do that. <laughs>
1: probably go. probably you know what we could probably do is create a fun fake study citing the Wuhan Lab of Climatology and get it through peer review based on what we've seen today
0: why can't why can't the environmentalists do a fun fake study like i don't know maybe the western united states is burning and and it's all due to 88 oil companies but make it fun <laughs>
1: Fun is not in their vocabulary. You know,
0: maybe pictures of people roasting marshmallows over the forest or making (laughs) s'mores. Uh, All right. Okay, so that
1: wraps it up for this edition of Climate Change Roundtable number 63. We're heading out for the weekend. Hope you have a great one. Next week, Sterling will be uh, on a well-earned vacation. And Linnea and I will be here, but we'll probably have a special guest and we'll be talking about hurricanes and a new paper about hurricanes that blows the whole climate alarmism thing right out of the water, literally. So for Linnea and Sterling, I thank you for joining us today. Thanks for your questions. Uh, Be sure to give us a like and subscribe, and we'll see you here again next Friday. Bye-bye.